toll-free. It's 800 941 Sean. If you want to be a part of the program, uh, remembering Rush one year since his passing, his brother David will join us at the bottom of the half hour uh, coming up. Um, sad day. We all remember a year ago. A year has flown by. Uh, and boy, it was, uh, every conservative I know misses him. And you can't replace a guy that talented. Um, anyway, Jim Banks of Indiana, remember he and Jim Jordan were kicked off the January 6th committee because they would ask the questions, okay, well, now that three people have corroborated to me on multiple occasions, Cash Patel, Mark Meadows, and Donald Trump himself, that the president, as required by law, on January 4th, authorized up to 20,000 troops to be called up knowing large crowds were headed to D.C. on the 6th of January and knowing that there's always bad apples in crowd and in, in cr- any crowd that size and also knowing that what happened the summer prior and that was 574 riots, dozens of dead Americans, thousands of injured police officers and, you know, billions in property damage. You would think that, oh, maybe we'll maybe we'll ask Nancy Pelosi uh, why she didn't take the authorization that the president legally gave her. She's responsible for protecting the Capitol. And why? Why did she not make use the resources that were approved for her? Why did Muriel Bowser reject it in writing for crying out loud? You, you, you just can't make this up. And now we've got Democrats saying that any conservative that had a different view as it relates to the events, not not the rioting, um, on January 6th, our national security threat. One last thing on this. The reason that they're doing this is because they can't talk about one positive thing that Joe Biden cared about. Now, if they really wanted to stop January 6th from ever, ever happening again, you'd have to ask Nancy Pelosi, why didn't you call up the guard? You'd have to ask the sergeant at arms. You'd have to get their text messages. You'd have to get their phone records. You'd have to bring them in to testify. You'd have to bring the D.C. mayor in to testify. The D.C. Capitol Police chief requested the National Guard on six separate occasions. Why was he denied what he said he needed to secure the Capitol? It makes no sense to anyone whatsoever. A domestic terrorism challenge in this country. There ought to be a bipartisan consensus to fight terrorism wherever it comes from. Uh, and particularly when it comes from within. For too long, our federal government has failed to address the growing terrorist menace in our own backyard. What we need is a focus uh, in Homeland Security on uh, domestic terrorism. Domestic violent extremism is the most acute threat, uh, terrorism-related threat that we are seeing uh, to our homeland. Intelligence government agencies now, they are telling us that that threat landscape is now a more of a domestic uh, uh, nature. The rise of domestic violent extremism is a serious and growing national security threat. The Biden administration will confront this threat with the necessary resources and resolve. What more do your departments need from Congress, and particularly this committee, to root out violent extremism? A commitment to redouble our efforts uh, to fight hate and to uh, fight one of the greatest threats that we face uh, currently on our homeland, which is the uh, threat of domestic terrorism. The domestic violent extremist threat is also rapidly evolving. How would the Justice Department adapt its approach to combating domestic violent extremism 
to address how the threat has evolved over the past few years. The most dangerous domestic terror threat facing America today comes from the forces that attacked our government on January 6th. And the violent, deadly insurrection on the Capitol nine months ago it was about white supremacy in my view. In the FBI's view, the top domestic violent extremist threat comes from racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists, specifically those who advocated for the superiority of the white race. Terrorism for white supremacy is the most lethal threat to the homeland today. Not ISIS, not Al-Qaeda, white supremacists. Let's stop pretending that the threat of Antifa is equivalent to the white supremacist threat. We know now we must confront and defeat political extremism, white supremacy, and domestic terrorism. All right, that's where their head is at. Now, the, uh, the same people that were mostly silent and even some helping, aiding, abetting, and assisting in the rioting in the summer of 2020. Now, why didn't Democrats speak out all summer when you have dozens of dead Americans, a police precinct burned to the ground, federal buildings being attacked, uh, you have thousands of cops injured, bricks, rocks, bottles, Molotov cocktails, and worse. And then, of course, arson and looting, billions of dollars in property damage. Uh, they didn't want to criticize those groups, did they? Now, we get tweets from the then vice presidential candidate to support the bail fund after they burned down a police precinct in Minnesota. You get praise for the LAPD by the you know soon-to-be vice president uh, that supports the defunding of the LAPD. It's insane. And it's happening in Democrats, by and large, they were all complicit. Yes, I support the defund movement because this is about the the um, investment in our communities, which have historically been divested. One that I'm actively engaged in, in advocacy for, is the reduction of really, truly talking about um, the reduction of our NYPD budget and defunding a $6 billion NYPD budget. This model of saying, not only do we need to defund, but we need to dismantle and start anew, allows us to really reimagine what public safety should look like in our community. You know, in, in many cities in America, over one third of their city budget goes to police. So we have to have this conversation. What are we doing? The last thing you need is an up-armored Humvee coming into a neighborhood. It's like the military invading. They don't know anybody. They become the enemy. They're supposed to be protecting these people. So my generic point is but that- Do we agree that we can redirect some of the funding? Yes, uh, absolutely. They said next to nothing. Joe Biden never mentioned it at his own convention. But no, if it's, it's anything you can tie to Donald Trump, then, of course, it's an insurrection. I said writing in real time on this program on January 6th, this cannot happen in our country. We have to be a nation of law and order. You, you cannot pursue happiness without peace and security. Simple. It's basic. It's fundamental. And we don't have, we have lawlessness all over the country. Where's the committee investigating all the rioting? Where is the committee trying, if you really want to prevent the Capitol from, from anything like that ever happening again, and I never want that to happen again, why don't you ask the question of the speaker who's responsible? Why, why, are, why did you not utilize the legally authorized troops that Donald Trump gave to you? 
because it's not up. It wasn't his call at that point. He, he, he his legal authority as it's required by law. The president has to approve it. He approved it. Confirmed by three of the five people in the room at the time on two occasions each just to make sure. So we verified that. And then, of course, you have, you know, the, you have the police chief, Capitol Police chief. He was asking for help. Anyway, Jim Banks uh, is in Indiana. He would be asking those questions if he was on the committee, if it wasn't a committee that really only wants to bludgeon Trump and has a predetermined outcome. And he's now running for reelection. And his Democratic challenger is trying to block him from running this year, claiming he violated the 14th Amendment when he voted to object in January of 2021. And uh, which I think is insane. But anyway, welcome to the democratic socialist left party of america uh, if you disagree with them they want to criminalize political differences congressman banks thanks for being with us hey sean good to be with you you know i kind of agree with the great one mark levin constitutional attorney that he is extraordinaire and and friend of mine that i didn't i, I believe that mike pence's role was ceremonial and he didn't have the authority that that would have to happen at the state level or would have had to have happened at the state level prior but that's not that's not what's at issue here. People are allowed to have differing opinions. And now they're trying to silence your voice here. And you have top election attorneys now promoting the idea that Republicans can be banned from office uh, based on a vote they took or an opinion they have that might differ from everybody else. That is insanity. And I think that is the end goal of the January 6th committee to do the same thing to Donald Trump to make sure that he can't run for office in 2024. Am I wrong on that? Uh, you're exactly right, Sean. Uh, keep in mind, first and foremost, I did exactly what my district in Northeast Indiana wanted me to do on January 6th by speaking out against an unconstitutional election that was conducted in 2020 where states changed their election laws without the consent or approval, the constitutional approval of state legislatures. I'll never back down or apologize for voting to object on January 6th. But now you have this Mark Elias, who's the Democrats' top lawyer. He, by the way, he was Hillary Clinton's lawyer. We now know the Clinton campaign spied on a sitting president, what is the biggest scandal in American political history. And we have Mark Elias, who's promoting this flawed legal theory that anyone who... Has, has he said this publicly? Because I haven't heard him say it publicly. Uh, well, he, he's pushing this legal theory, yes, very publicly, that Donald Trump's name shouldn't be allowed on the ballot, that that my name and others who voted to object shouldn't be allowed uh, on the ballot. And, and that's what that's what my my, uh, my my Democrat opponent has filed a challenge. I had to hire an attorney and spend uh, money out of my campaign to send an attorney to the Indiana election board meeting Even, tomorrow. Yeah. A quick break more with Congressman Jim Banks of Indiana on the other side. 800-941-SEAN is our number. David Limbaugh, Russia's brother, will join us on the one-year anniversary of, of losing the goat of talk radio. Hey, you know, keeping your Internet connected uh, with devices and update everything is always a good idea, not just for consumers, but if you're a company as well. One bug getting a lot of media attention lately. It's called Log4J, and cyber criminals are exploiting this bug to break into a server and steal data. 
All of us every day we're putting personal information at risk on the Internet. And in a second, these cyber criminals can steal everything that is yours. They'll ruin your name, your reputation. They'll rob you blind. They'll hurt your finances. They'll destroy your credit score. LifeLock sees the threats we all miss on our own. They'll even scour the dark web to see if your personal information is compromised and for sale. If it is, you get an alert. If your identity is stolen, you'll get a dedicated restoration specialist that'll fix things for you. Anyway, protect what is yours, LifeLock by Norton. They have a low annual rate. You'll save up to an additional 25% off your first year when you call 1-800-LIFELOCK or go to LifeLock.com and just use the promo code Hannity. That's how you save even more money. That's 1-800-LIFELOCK, LifeLock.com, promo code Hannity, up to 25% off to protect your name and reputation, your finances, and your credit score. Sean Hannity Show, a thermonuclear MMA assault on fake news. Hannity's on right now. We continue with Congressman Jim Banks of the great state of Indiana. My my objections are very clear in, for example, we now had the state of Wisconsin of court ruling that, in fact, the law was not followed in the state of Wisconsin. Uh, you had that three, four Supreme Court decision. The chief justice of the Supreme Court of Wisconsin said, nope, you violated the state law and state constitution, a stinging rebuke in that case. Uh, in Pennsylvania, same thing. They circumvented the difficult, arduous process where their state constitution spells out in very great detail uh, how people, what what the conditions are where people can vote by mail. And it's very limited. And yet the, rather than do the hard work of changing the constitution and amending it, they went forward instead with legislation, which is unconstitutional. All these states that had laws that partisan observers get to watch the vote count from start to finish, they were not followed in 2020. And that's why I've called for election integrity measures to be adopted by every state prior to 2022, now this year, meaning this coming midterms. And that's signature verification, that's voter ID, uh, that's chain of custody controls for mail-in ballots if the states allow it. Uh, We can't have illegal immigrants voting. We need to check the voter rolls and update them every election. And partisan observers It means people from every political party on the ballot need to be able to watch the vote count up close, not 100 feet away, not 20 feet away, not six feet away, up close and make sure that the process has integrity in it. And I think that's what that's what's been missing. And I think under the guise of covid restrictions, they didn't they didn't put in place measures to accommodate the situation that was rather unique. And do I believe that? You, I, without those measures, I don't think you can have integrity in elections. Anyway, I'll give you the last word, sir. I, I couldn't agree more. And to, to speak out and, and vote to object on January 6th, just like many of the Democrats voted to object, object previously, uh, th- th- this is the way these Democrats operate, Sean. They want, they want to take my name off the ballot because they can't beat me at the ballot box. And, and that's why they're pushing this uh, flawed legal theory that Mark Elias and others are pushing that does more to destroy 
democracy in our country than to defend it like they like they say they well do. maybe i'll invite him on the program and you can debate him on it i doubt it'll come but well i would love that debate i'd be happy to and uh, anyway we'll follow your race and uh you never should have been kicked off that committee jim jordan should never have been kicked off that committee the fact that the chairman of that committee says nancy pelosi is off limits when in fact as required by law the president authorized up to twenty thousand tr- tr- national guard troops to be called up if needed they didn't do it the question to, needs to go to her. Why didn't she utilize what the president authorized as required by law? Why didn't Muriel Bowser? Why didn't they listen to the Capitol Police chief that requested the extra help? Because if they would have done their job, this wouldn't have happened. But the committee won't even ask these questions. And that's why I say it's a sham committee with the biggest purveyor of election lies on the committee. That's the congenital liar, Adam Schiff. Uh, it's it. They have a predetermined outcome, and it's just to bludgeon Donald Trump, not to get to the truth, not to find ways to prevent something like that from ever happening again. And I'd like to have a committee looking into the rioting in the summer of 2020 and, and go through Democrats that encouraged through their tweets or encouraged through their rhetoric defunding the police efforts, et cetera, et cetera. How's that worked out in any city? It's not worked out very well. Anyway, we appreciate you being with us, Jim. 800-941-SHAWN is our number. Five to the top of the hour. Of course, the one-year anniversary since we lost, well, the greatest of all time in terms of talk radio, and that is uh, Rush Limbaugh. And we're remembering Rush today. I was on with uh, Clay Travis and, and Buck Sexton earlier today. And it's hard to imagine that it's been a full year, considering he really was the Babe Ruth of talk radio, as my friend Neil Borch used to refer to him. And on a very personal level, I just have to say that for all of us that are in this business, he forged a path and he made it so broad and so wide that opened up doors for an entire generation of conservatives to finally have a voice in this country. He started his syndication in in 1988. I, I had only started a year earlier in radio in 1987. And I remember I was actually in the college radio station studio when somebody said you ever hear this guy rush limbaugh and like no who's rush limbaugh um you gotta listen to him he's on ktms in santa barbara our affiliate out there and i listened to him and it it actually was a big controversy at one point about homeless people living under this big fig tree in santa barbara and it was a nuisance and on the beach and and he did these homeless updates and he put humor to everything that he did and he had incredible keen insight And he emerged as the real voice and leader of the conservative movement in this country. And I remember when we lost him last year, my first thought was nobody can replace him. I know that what he would want is for all of us to continue his life's work, his life's passion, which was liberty, freedom, capitalism, uh, the American dream, individualism talked about it all the time, articulated it better than anybody, and that we'd all have to up our game and we'd never be able to fill the void. 
Unfortunately, that turned out to be true. We're all trying, and we miss him a lot. And David Limbaugh, his brother, well-known columnist and author, best-selling author in his own right, and also on a personal level, level has been a very dear friend for all my years in the media, has done every contract I've ever had in media, radio and TV, uh, is with us. Um, I know it's a year later. I know it was painful. I remember the day that you called me. You gave me a heads up maybe about five minutes before Rush was going to announce that he had advanced stage four lung cancer. I remember that call like it was yesterday. And you said to me, I, I, I'm sworn to secrecy, but I know you've got a show to do. And I know this is this this is going to shock you, but I, I feel I, I need to give you a heads up so you can be prepared. And you told me about what your brother was going to announce. Do you remember that day? Yes, yeah, that was uh, very difficult. Catherine had called me, and um, she broke down. We both did, started crying when she told me. Uh, and Rush was very stoic about it, didn't express any emotion to me, didn't want to sound sad or get us sad. But, but I vividly remember calling you because we've been so close through the years. You've been so respectful to Rush and such a good friend, so supportive. And I just wanted you to know because uh, it was going to be it was it would gobsmack you to hear this out of the blue while you were live. So I felt like I had to tell you, and I knew I could trust you not to prematurely announce it. Obviously, it was about five minutes before um, I got on the phone. You had said you were going to tell Mark too, and Mark and I actually were on the phone together, listening together, and it was really hard on both of us. And because we both loved your brother and we both know that we owe a lot of our careers to your brother. And he uh, and, and then the next thing I remember is I look up at the clock and it's three oh five and I'm on, you know, my music starts in a minute. And I hadn't thought that I, I now have to, you know, what what would have what, what do you say in a moment like that? Because nobody expected that kind of announcement. And. I have no idea what I said. I would never go back and listen to it. I just remember it was hard, but I remembered my last thought before I went on the air, and that is I, I listened to the tone of your brother, and he was stoic in the face of all of this. I don't know how he did it, but he did it. Yeah, I don't, and, I don't either. And I tried to just follow that example. Um, I want you to explain one thing that maybe people don't know. You and da you and Rush were, were so close. What was your day like? You live in Cape Girardeau. What was your day like every day between 11 and 2? Yeah, well, I would always try to listen. And on the days that, that I had columns to do or I was working on a book, it was very hard uh, because, as you know, uh, talk radio is it's a two-way street. The... the listener is very engaged and it's cerebral too with the way rush did it the way you and mark do it and so i found myself feeling guilty but whenever i had serious work to, to write or to work on contracts or do whatever i just literally had to turn it off i couldn't do it halfway that's I, that's the nature it wasn't background noise it was a very compelling show as is yours and as is mark's but but I, uh, most of the time, I didn't have such urgent business, and I was able to listen. And so um, early on, I used to send him texts and notes and during the show. And amazingly, he could, he could do, he could multitask. 
and it never really irritated him, but I tried not to not wear out my welcome and give him my ideas and try to be cute or whatever. I tried to limit my shared insights with him to things that really might matter, and I don't, I rarely did I come up with something he didn't, so I didn't over overplay that hand, but it, I did have access, and it was always fun uh, to be able to engage, but I mostly left him alone during the show, and uh, anything I had to deal with him, uh, and especially during prep, and I do that with you, too, I, I know how intense this is. You know, one thing that's bothered me throughout as a brother of a radio talk show host and as a good friend of several others like you, I I realize how seriously hard work this is. I mean, how, how the, the show prep. And, and a lot of people just assume because you guys make it easy that you just go on and it's no big deal. But you By the way, that, so that used to drive your brother nuts. Everybody thinks they can, that there's no work behind this. It's, it, it drove Rush crazy when people dismissed it as, oh, so you just talk on the radio for three hours. No, yeah, not, yeah. not quite. That was I, I took those I took that as a personal insult for for him on his behalf vicariously, and so I I couldn't I didn't like that at all, but I did respect it. So it was a rare occasion when I would bother him before the show, and so I waited uh, till after the show and gave him time to get home if I needed to talk to him. And the thing about it was, I will say this: uh, I was in constant contact with him. I would say, you know, I'm who knows twenty texts a day. We didn't talk on the phone since he got his hearing problem, uh, developed his hearing issue. He didn't like to talk on the phone. It's hard to hear, even with his cochlear implant. So I, I just, we go back and forth a lot. And you know, what's funny is mostly mundane things. People say to me, uh, I get, boy, it must have been great you guys talking about politics. You're both so into it. I said, no, we didn't talk that much about politics because I, we thought exactly alike and there was no, there was no mystery. I'm not going to ask him what he thinks about something when I know intuitively, I know instinctively. Now, sometimes we did, and we talked about how bad things were and what, what do you do about it and all that kind of thing. Mostly we talked about TV shows and that kind of thing, just, and, and family and all, just personal things that siblings would talk about. What was Rush like at home? You, you're a family of lawyers. I do distinctly remember when he interviewed your 100-year-old grandfather. On, I think it was on his birthday. And yep. uh, I know the family wanted everybody to be a lawyer. And yet he went his own way. And and he started broadcasting in the house when he was young. Tell, tell everybody that story. Yeah, he, he was always, you know, my dad was super brilliant, super engaged in politics, a lawyer's lawyer, a constitutionalist. A Reagan conservative before Reagan, when Reagan was still a Democrat, and uh, he 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 taught us, and we sat at his feet. And it's not like when people go, "Oh, it must have been fascinating growing up," and you guys all talking. No, Rush and I, all we did was listen. My dad uh-huh. would, would hold court, and we'd listen, and our friends as well. But my mom was the entertainer, and she we get our sense of humor from her. From her, and so Rush got the best of both, and he was a performer just from the get go. And so he could always do impressions. He could imitate people. It was uncanny. When we were in high school, and he was two years older than me, he and his friends would come over, and they would produce these sophisticated tapes on 8-track with sound effects. And Rush was so into radio, so into that kind of thing, into sound quality and production, that he, they did these sophisticated skits, and Rush did like 10 voices. And they were so accurate. And, and then 
then he got this Remco Caravelle when we were actually on 412 Sunset in Cape Girardeau, the first house we lived in, when probably he was in his, before his teen years. And uh, it would enable him to broadcast on the AM airwaves, actually broadcast on the AM airwaves within our house. I mean, it wasn't projecting because then you'd interfere with the radio station. That wouldn't work. But it was allowed. And so my mom and I would be downstairs and he'd be upstairs and we'd be his <laughs> audience. And, I mean, that, that is that is a great story. I, I, I know for me, the first time the light went on, it changed my life. That was it. It was over. Uh, and that's all I wanted to do. I wasn't good at it when I started. Um, and I still can't listen to my own show. But I, I love what I do every day. And he, I think one of the great gifts that your brother had is he was able to take that side of your mom, the, the humor side, the serious analytical mind of your dad, merge them together and create something that was just totally unique and and turn three hours in, into must listening for generations of people. I mean, the term rush babies was a real term. It still is. Yeah, there's no question about it. And, you know, he he was bursting to be a uh, radio broadcaster. He always wanted to do it. And he finally became a DJ. Well, not finally, but when he was 15 years old. And then he, then he later went to Pittsburgh on a pretty decent station, a couple of stations up there. But he was uncontrollable because he wanted to do his own thing. So he didn't like to just sit back and be a disc jockey. He always editorialized and got into commentary, political. He did pranks and announcements. And, he, and finally got himself fired because he was, he was it, it kind of intrinsically insubordinate because he knew that he wanted to do what he ultimately did do. But there was no genre for conservative radio talk show hosts. And so he created, he literally created the genre by proving himself. And he finally got to do what he was born to do. And, uh, yeah, yeah, he's brought, he brought, uh, radio to life. And I, and you knew it, you, you know, when you first said it. I, I benefited from it. Guys. Yeah, we all benefited yeah. from it. Um, all right, we'll take a quick break. Remembering Rush Limbaugh one year later since his passing with his brother, David Limbaugh. Uh, quick break, right back. More of David on the other side as we continue to remember Rush Limbaugh. Unmasking the left and holding the right accountable for their promises. America needs Hannity now more than ever. This is the Sean Hannity Show. I will continue with David Limbaugh. It's the one-year anniversary since we lost the the greatest of all time, the goat of talk radio, uh, David's brother, Rush Limbaugh. The thing that impressed me in, in the last year of his life, and I was very happy when he got the Medal of Freedom from President Trump at the State of the Union address. That's an incredible story in and of itself. Oh, yeah. I've only told it on on air once to Bo Snurdly when he did this, his tribute to, uh, to Rush. But... What Rush, I, I said, you know, we learned a lot about Rush because he would go through hell. They nearly kill you to save you or buy you more time yeah. when you get a yeah. diagnosis such as he had. And we now know what his bucket list was. His bucket list was to be with his audience, to be on the air, be behind the golden EIB mic, 
and he would get well enough just to get back on the air, not to go anywhere, not to do anything. He hadn't, that, that was his, listen, I, he was born to do this is the only thing I can conclude. Yeah, you're, you were very insightful on that. And I will, I will want to, uh, want to mention this. I don't think people know this, but he really suffered in that last year. And, and because the, the chemo was very devastating. He, his legs swelled up. He was in enormous pain. He'd send me pictures of his, his uh, legs. They were just gigantic, like three sizes, uh, you know, his calves three sizes bigger than they ought to be, and beet red. He never once said anything about that on the air. He never once complained. I, he, he would never, he would forbid me to say that. Anyway, he didn't want sympathy. What he wanted was to continue his work because he lived for the radio show and his audience. And I thought the way he handled his disease was so courageous, so admirable. And the way he approached his faith during that last year was so inspiring. And I think he did so much good for so many people in setting that example and dying with dignity like he did. I, I, I can only echo that sentiment. I, will, I, I don't know how much of this you want to share, and uh, you don't have to share any of it. But almost every day since his diagnosis, you you both had this prayer thing going together. This, you know, his faith got stronger. I don't know if you want to mention it. Yeah, well, you know, he uh, never considered himself uh, a Bible scholar or theologian. He didn't study it as much as I do, not that I'm a Bible scholar or theologian. But I try to dabble in it way more than, than he did. But I would share my uh, devotionals with him and, and, and Bible studies and verses in the day. And he would read them, and he, and he was very, very grateful when I would send them. Sometimes I felt like almost guilty for sending them because I knew how busy he was, yet I knew how much more important this was than anything else. And so did he, and he always, he never hesitated to thank me and say, you don't know how much this means to me, David. You don't know how much. Well, Rush Limbaugh, <laughs> one year later, David Limbaugh, he, he was blessed with an incredible family, the most amazing brother in the world, and he is sorely missed. And we really appreciate you coming on today, uh, reminding people of, of this great man who, who did so much good for this country. Uh, we really uh, appreciate it. You're such a good friend, and uh, you don't know how much I appreciate you, how much he appreciated you. And, you know, you're the best. Thank you so much for this time. All right. We're praying for you and your family today. 800-941-SHAWN is our number. We'll take a break. We'll continue.